Hey, everybody, this is episode 56 of Artist Soapbox. Hello, and welcome to Artist Soapbox, a podcast featuring triangle area artists talking about their work, their plans, their manifestos. I am Tamara Kassane. Who determines your success? What does failure mean to you? Think for a second about some examples of personal and professional failures or successes that you've experienced. Woo, that makes my stomach do (laughs) flip-flops. Would you be willing to build a public performance piece based on your answers? Choreographer and dancer Anna Barker has been playing in that sandbox for the last five years to create original dance theater performances interrogating our relationship to success and failure. In this episode, we discuss her creation process and style, how she makes modern dance accessible to audiences, and what's next on the horizon for her, including translating dance into film. I touched on my approach to success as a local artist in episode 29 of Artist Soapbox. It's called What I Learned from 40 Years of Not Being Famous, Part 1, Define and Redefine Success. I'll include a link to that in the show notes if you want to give it a listen. I love this conversation with Anna because we got to dip again into the internal work that I think is necessary for artists making public work. I think it's very challenging to fully embrace your creative spirit and open the floodgates artistically if you have blocks around your definition of success. So what are you striving for in your life? What are you willing and unwilling to sacrifice to achieve certain markers of a, quote, successful career? What fits you? These are big questions, right? And that's not even touching on failure. You'll hear me get really excited about that word during our conversation, which is kind of funny to be so excited about discussing failure. Anyway, I hope this sparks some introspection for you. Enjoy the episode. Anna Barker is a choreographer and performer based in Durham, North Carolina. After spending 10 years dancing in Philadelphia and New York City, Anna relocated back to her hometown and founded her dance theater company, Real Live People, with collaborator Leah Wilkes. Since then, Anna has created and produced three evening-length works in Durham, It's Not Me, It's You, in 2014, Feature Presentation in 2016, and Again, But This Time with Feeling in 2018. Anna is the recipient of the North Carolina Arts Council's Fellowship for 2018-19. She has presented work as part of the American Dance Festival, Duke Performances, the Philadelphia Fringe Festival, APAP NYC, the North Carolina Dance Festival, Waxworks at Triskelion Arts in Brooklyn, and many other locations throughout North Carolina and New York City. Anna is a freelance choreographer and movement consultant and teaches Pilates locally at Bull City Pilates and Massage and at Ninth Street Dance. Her website is annasbarker.com. Here we go. Hi, Anna. How are you? I'm well, thanks. How are you? I'm good. Thanks so much for being here. Yeah, for sure. You mentioned that it is your mission to figure out a way to keep people engaged in modern dance. Why is that? I think that something that um, was coming up for me, especially moving back to Durham, which is my hometown, and getting involved in the creative community here, I was hearing a lot of folks who are outside of the dance community expressing some concern or apprehension about going to dance performances. And I was asking these questions because I was having a hard time figuring out why audiences weren't showing up. Mm 
to dance performances. Even some of the most popular modern dance companies can't sell out Deepak. And so I was trying to think of this not only as a sustainable model for my own income um, and for my own life, but I was kind of thinking about ways in which I could invite audiences in that aren't necessarily dance goers. Um, So I was having these conversations uh, with members of the community and uh, some of the things that came up were not having a vocabulary around modern dance. There's this uh, assumption that you go to a dance performance, you're supposed to get something, right? There's some sort of like message yes. that you're supposed to receive and it's this foreign medium and people get anxious about that. And so people are watching dance, knowing that they're supposed to get something, not being able to access it and then panicking. And so then it's just easier, I think, to stay home or to see it and be like, I don't know what that was, but I saw it. <laughs> um, and maybe I had an experience, maybe I didn't. Um, and so there was there were a lot of conversations around that, even as I was starting to show work in the community in kind of more informal spaces and having conversations around that. And started to think about what kind of creative way I could invite people in. And I have always been someone that's been really interested in human beings and sort of, you know, the human experience and my, my, um, the physicality, the way in which that presents itself in my work, um, is through a series of sort of gestural movement or idiosyncratic movement. And so I was thinking about my technique and the way that I incorporate this kind of sense of humanity and, and, um, common experience and common understanding and was trying to think about, how I could level the playing field. And I just started to make this duet with uh, my collaborator, Leah Wilkes, um, and realized that instead of having one long sort of message, that I could split it up into a series of vignettes, a series of short dances that are all kind of little worlds that I can build to um, show people different ways in which uh folks kind of experience a certain thing. So for my first show, that was relationships. You know, we spent a lot of time talking about the sort of different facets of relationships and dating. We were both kind of in the dating, on the dating scene at the time and in and out of sort of casual relationships and and thinking about all the experiences and the conversations we had with people who weren't dancers and decided to sort of create various instances of of examples, sort of what I call sort of my supporting arguments, mm-hmm. ways in which people can look at something and be like, oh, that looks familiar. I've seen that. Or that has been me. Or that experience is familiar. And if that is all they get, if they just get one of those, then I feel like I've done my job. I've succeeded at making a connection uh, with someone who otherwise maybe wouldn't see dance or wouldn't have any understanding of mm-hmm. kind of what they were looking at or, or just experiencing anxiety around that. So, so yeah, so that, that's, that was really, I think, uh, the way that I approached, um, providing points of access into the work. And I think it's also allowed me a lot of freedom too within that model. These vignettes are stories that are relatable by the audience to your work. Are there other things that you do to increase this accessibility? Yes. I 
do it through um, multimedia. Mm -hmm. I make short films sometimes. Those are their own vignettes. In my last show, I think we had three short films, uh, each of which were excerpts. Um, in my most recent work, we also use projection, ways in which we can project onto dancers and project dancers onto the wall. I incorporate music that's often popular or recognizable. And I also incorporate humor. And that is kind of where my theater background comes in. And that really serves primarily as a way to really engage people to the sort of task at hand or to the material that exists underneath all of the dance and underneath all of the other stuff. Um, I find humor to be a really fascinating tool. It's a, a really great way to explore really difficult subject material while not only kind of maintaining a sense of humor, but also looking at the the um, humanness inside of all of those experiences. In my most recent work, we looked at relationships. This was a show about failure. So we were looking at, um, we did a couple job interviews that were not dance related at all. They were just, uh, you know, uh, interviews that, that you may come across in your career just haphazardly. We also looked at dating. We looked at dates gone really wrong. And we looked at the sort of subtlety in that as well. And that was, that was a really interesting experience too, because those were uh, the short films that we created. They were kind of taking you through these series of dates. Um, and what was so cool about using film was that we could really, really hone in on some of the really small gestures, facial expressions, things that feel like they can make or break a situation, things that change the tone, um, and things that don't always read in a big proscenium style theater. So, you know, we looked at that. In one of my shows, I had a text conversation with a Tinder date. <laughs> um, so the the conversation was sort of coming up behind me. And this was, this was kind of in the beginning stages. It was 2014. So it was kind of in the beginning, of, beginning stages of when you could text someone and then the dots would come up as they were mm -hmm. responding. And so I created, um, I screen captured sort of a, a horrible text exchange between myself and a Tinder date, a prospective Tinder date, um, who was just being kind of a jerk and was was being very indirectly a jerk too, right. which is something that happens a lot, these kind of microaggressions that we experience. Um, and so I found it a really useful tool and a, and a funny way to talk about this terrible thing that we have to deal with when we're dating mm -hmm. and these walls that we have to put up, you know, having to maintain all the time and not be vulnerable and pretend that everything's fine mm -hmm. and that you don't care, which is of course not the reality. Right. Um, and it was one of those moments that I could feel people cringing Laughing and cringing, yes, you know, yes, it's like funny yeah. and so not funny at the same time. And I think that, and in that moment, I realized that that was a really great way for me to 
talk about some things that felt really important to me. It was a way for me to, I guess, bear my soul or be vulnerable, make myself uh, vulnerable and expose these ideas, but also to be political and to talk about social justice and talk about um, the things that we are dealing with in you know, our culture. And so this has become a really great platform for me in my own life to address these things that I find problematic. Another device that I use is, is repetition. I bring things back a lot a second time around. Um, that's another great thing about using vignettes is that it doesn't have to be linear, mm-hmm. right? So you can kind of jump around. Um, there's a lot of intention, of course, about how, you know, the general arc is and how the how the show is going to flow. When I use repetition, it's really helpful because the first time, you know, everything is, you know, in context. Nothing exists in a vacuum, right? So the first time you see something, you might think, oh, that I don't think too much of that. That was like kind of funny or interesting or whatever. And then you see the same thing 40 minutes later after this other experience and it means something completely different. So that is a device that I use a lot Mm -hmm. for sure. And then it becomes a sort of theatrical element in itself. So I have a question because I need some education around this. (laughs) (laughs) You're talking about these devices that you're using in a dance theater piece. Is that Mm -hmm. how you would describe it? Is there any pushback that you get from other dance aficionados that this is not a pure enough form to present to the audience. Is that a thing? Yes, absolutely. All right. Absolutely. And actually in, uh, in my show feature presentation, which is about success, we actually have the audience respond to that directly. So we have a mid performance discussion, which is my kind of jab at post-performance discussions because right. I hate them. <laughs> and I have been asked these ludicrous questions at these Q&As, uh, also making a commentary on on how I always try to run out before the performance discussion starts, even today. Like, right. I hate them, you know? And so what we did is we captured the audience halfway through. We didn't tell anyone that it was happening, and it just served as another vignette. Um, and our moderator comes on stage and says, thank you so much for staying for the mid-performance discussion. Uh, we change out of our costumes. We come out in our sweats and we get asked all these asinine questions. But then we have an opportunity to ask the audience questions. And the first question that I asked was, how many of you think this is dance? Because I've had a lot of critique on my about my work, you know, saying that this isn't dance. So Mm -hmm. how many, you know, sort of show of hands, how many of you think this is dance? Luckily, the people who were in the audience were like, yes, this is dance. But that is absolutely something that I have come up against. I don't think that it is necessarily something I I pay that much attention to because I, I think that it's a pretty limiting view. And I also was a theater person first. I was an actress from the time I was seven, Mm -hmm. you know, that was my first love. I came to dance much later when I was 13. So I find that incorporating my theater experience and background, which relays into just my life now is a great way to kind of just connect to people really quickly. And then once you have that connection, then you can take people into all of these other places. Mm-hmm. Once you have earned the trust of your audience, then you can say, okay, cool, you're coming along for this ride. I'm going to use some rhetoric that's familiar 
And then now that I've got you, I'm going to take you here and I've set up a structure that feels okay, that feels like people are just able to have an experience. At least that is my goal Mm -hmm. through using that theater. I'm going to toss another of your own quotes at you. (laughs) Um, You said that you're trying to get your work to be accessible without screwing with the integrity and the message. And I'm curious about what does the integrity mean? I think what I mean by that is that the work itself, you know, even though I'm incorporating all of this multimedia, even though I'm incorporating humor and theater, these are not cheap shots. This is a very carefully constructed endeavor. And I believe that this is a way to bring people in and this is a way to connect to people, but the stakes also have to be high. There has to be a reason why I'm doing this. And that is revealed throughout these vignettes and this multimedia and the humor and the theater and whatever and the dance. All of these elements can work alongside one another and can integrate into this underlying message that is really important and really is the underlying theme of the whole show. And so I am very careful about how I use these elements so that they don't become tropes. What I mean by integrity is is not you know messing with the underlying intention and the underlying message because I work from a very thematic place. That is always the first thing that I arrive upon is what do I want to make work about right now? And then what are different ways that I can talk about this thing and that I can show this thing without saying, Hey, everybody, here's what I'm trying to tell you. You know, I'm kind of leaving, leaving a little bit of it open to interpretation, obviously. Um, But everything has this real intention underneath it. Um, And What I would love to have audiences walk away with is this idea that they have, they had all these different experiences and that they can have a conversation then about how they all connected, why the timeline mattered and the context mattered, um, how things changed as the work progresses, and what we're actually trying to get at underneath all this. Once you strip away, all of the movement, the beautiful like dancey movement and the theater and the lights and all of the production value, what is left. Mm-hmm. Um, and that still has to carry through for me. Otherwise, I haven't done my job. So let's talk a little bit about the, the subject, kind of the underlying mm-hmm. themes. I know that for the last five years, you've really dug into the subjects of success and failure and created work in response to those ideas Why is that a topic that you have returned to for many years in a row? Success and failure are two things that are really personalized and they are universal concepts. Everyone has their own idea of what success and failure feel like in their own lives. And there are kind of two things. One is that you know, the definition of success 
is different for every person, right? And it's nebulous. It's always changing. So as we change our understanding of success and failure changes and our relationship to success and failure changes as artists and as dancers, we experience a ton of failure. And, you know, my first show that was about success feature presentation really tried to explore the different ways that we are constantly driving towards what success feels like. And I use air quotes around success. And as dancers, we're just constantly reaching and reaching and reaching for this model of success that we have, someone has determined is, is what successful dance looks like. What is that? How would you describe that? In my own life, you know, part of this, part of my research was living in New York, was being a dancer in New York. And I moved there straight out of undergrad. And I had this idea, you know, that I think everyone does when they move to New York that they're going to end up dancing for one of 10 companies. That's a full-time gig that, you know, performs in these giant opera houses and they have benefits and blah, blah, blah. And what I discovered, which was my sort of rude awakening, was that there are millions of us out there all trying to fight for the same 10 jobs. And I found that not only was the audition process really humiliating, um, but that it kind of was messing with my relationships and it was messing with my friendships. Mm. Um, because what I discovered was that audition after audition, I was coming up against my friends and the people that I just take class with in my community. And I decided after a couple particular, particularly heinous audition experiences, I decided to remove myself from the audition track because I decided that it was, it was dehumanizing. Um, for me, it made me feel like I didn't want to dance anymore. It really um, was starting to change my relationship to dance. And at that point, I knew I had to figure something else out. Mm -hmm. So I stepped away from that for a while. And I was performing a lot for other – I was performing in other people's work. And I realized that I actually didn't care about the work that I was performing in. And decided I need to take a complete break from dance, which is when I moved down here, and then realized, oh, that I actually want to create my own work. That's when I started to talk about, you know, draw on my own sort of personal experiences um, and have been thinking a lot about, you know, the idea of success and failure and this idea that moving back to Durham in some people's eyes is a failure. You know, me leaving New York City, not only felt to other people like very, a very confusing choice. No one understood why I was moving back to Durham. I didn't allow myself to actually move back to Durham. I told everyone I was going to be back in nine months um, and that I was just taking a break. I felt an overwhelming sense of failure in myself about moving back to Durham, a place that I grew up in and couldn't wait to leave. Right. Of course. You know, so, so I, I, was really thinking a lot about my own idea of success and failure and what that meant for me geographically and then what that meant professionally in terms of my career. And um, I realized when I started creating my own work again that that actually felt like the life that I wanted. And that felt like the career path that 
suddenly made a whole lot of sense to me. And I realized, oh, I just need to redefine my own relationship to success, mm-hmm. um, which is what I did. And then I decided to stay here and form a company and create work in a place that was more affordable. The cost of living was lower. It meant that I could dedicate more time to the creative process. It meant that I could rent rehearsal space. It meant that there were people in the community who were willing to come in and work on projects with me without being paid $20 an hour. You know, in New York, time is money. Everything is, everyone's kind of looking out for number one because it's, that is the culture up there. And here it was such an overwhelming sense of community for me, which is what, in part why I decided to stay here. But really in terms of success and failure, and I know I'm kind of like drifting all over the map here, I think I was really drawn to the idea of success in particular because I was having a lot of experience or a lot of conversations in my own life about um, how my definition of success was changing Mm -hmm. and was having a lot of conversations with people my age about that and about what really, you know, uh, what mattered the most and sort of the zooming out version, right? That was part of it. And then, you know, thinking about how different, Success is to everyone, to each and every person. So yeah, it just felt kind of like a natural thing to kind of bring up and talk about as a way of saying, okay, this is my own experience with success, but also I think everyone has had these struggles, just constantly sort of reaching for the next step, the next thing, and and wanting to engage more with people about that idea. So when you returned to Durham, you were going to stop dancing? I was taking a break. You were taking a break. And then all of a sudden, you know, fast forward. Right. And you are creating your own work. You have your own company. What happened? It was kind of accidental. Um, I was down here doing a Pilates certification, which was my reason for moving. I couldn't, couldn't move back without some sort of structure some sort of, you know, intentional decision to leave New York City, right? right? Um, So I came down here, left my stuff in New York. I told my roommate I would be back in nine months and to sublet my room. And I reconnected with Leah Wilkes, who is an old friend of mine. We grew up together and danced in the same dance studio. She was upstairs doing ballet and I was downstairs doing jazz. (laughs) Um, And... Uh, she was teaching class at ADF, at the ADF studios. And I started going, started talking to her about the dance community in New York and how much I was struggling. And at some point she looked at me and she said, you're going to stay here. And I was like, no, I don't No, You're wrong. Thanks, but not true. She was like, okay, we'll just see. And I got a residency at Elsewhere um, Collaborative, which is in Greensboro, and did kind of a site-specific performance there and worked a lot with sort of uh, physical, like, boundaries and obstacles and constraints and then came out of that and approached Leah and said, hey, I really want to try and make a duet about obstacles and 
boundaries and these things that we keep coming up against. She and I were both kind of having conversations about that in our, in our lives, irrespective of dance. Then it became clear that we were really just talking about relationships. Right. Um, and then we made a duet, about a 10-minute duet, about the awkwardness of gray areas in dating and uh, showed it around a little bit. And it was pretty well received. And then we started talking about it. And I realized that I just had so much more to say about this and wanted to explore incorporating more theater and more text into a dance work. And it just kind of evolved from there. And then we started to create more and more work. And then we realized, oh, we need to make an evening length work. Leah at the same time was forming Dida, which is the Durham Independent Dance Artists, which is a fantastic umbrella organization, which kind of puts dance companies, independent dance companies on the map and allows us, because we have a curated season, to have reviewers come in, you know, to have marketing um, and to have a little bit more exposure. So that was all happening around the same time that I was creating this duet with Leah about relationships. And one thing kind of led to another. And then uh, we ended up being kind of the debut Mm -hmm. performance for Dida. And that was in 2014. And it was at Murderco. It was on a concrete floor. I don't know what I was thinking. (laughs) And, and it was really well received. And I, and I had folks come up to me afterwards who had never seen dance And I remember these moments so clearly where people came up to me weeks and weeks after seeing the show saying, this one thing that you did just killed me because I suddenly knew exactly what you were talking about or exactly just, it was just like a brief moment and they were different, you know, depending on um, who was talking to me. And I had so much gratitude for that process and, and I suddenly it suddenly became very clear to me that that was a thing that I really wanted to do. And so I thought if I can keep creating these little moments that people can grasp onto, then that will be an incredibly rewarding experience for me. And so I think that's why I've continued to work in the vignette format so that I can be like, okay, this didn't work. Cool. What about this? This familiar? No. Okay. Probably this will be. Yeah. We have all these different ideas And of course, they're not all going to land, right, for each person. That's the whole point, Mm -hmm. right? It's like having the opportunity, having 13 opportunities to connect to the work. Right, right. So this is a very obvious question then. (laughs) What is success to you at this point in your life? I feel like it changes all the time. I feel like if I can continue to make work that feels impactful and important and continues to provide points of access to other communities, that feels like success to me. It's a lot of things, you know? It's it's the ability to prioritize my career, which I couldn't do in New York. It's, you know, having a yard, having a dog, having a house, um, being able to come home in the middle of the day and have lunch. All of these things sort of, you know, building a quality of life that allows me to be creative and allows me to prioritize that. That that feels like 
my success right now. So as long as I can, I can keep trying to make that happen. Mm-hmm. I, I've, yeah, there's still a lot more work to do. If I could find a way to fully fund my dance company and not have to worry, I mean, that is such a big part of having any kind of artistic endeavor, especially something that's like a company constantly searching for funding, constantly marketing, constantly doing all this background administrative work all year. Mm -hmm. You know, Um, if I could find a way to minimize that or to hand that off to someone who likes doing that work, that, that is, that would be the next step for me Mm -hmm. is, is trying to, um, to make that happen. I think something really clicked for me when I finally understood the difference between my internal drive for a certain kind of success and the external criteria that society was putting on me or I thought they were putting on me. And I mean, it's one thing if internally I was striving, you know, to be on Broadway and to be a millionaire and to do all the things, Mm -hmm. right? And then that would be legitimately the kind of success that I was seeking. But it's another thing entirely not to want to subscribe to that, but feel like you still have to strive for it. Right. And I was doing that for a very long time, kind of half-heartedly and feeling really yucky about Mm -hmm. it until I realized that I don't actually want that stuff. I want Mm -hmm. these other things and very specific things like what you're talking about. Like I want a yard. I want a dog. I mean, these are very specific things for a person, an individual. And I think it's really important that we identify for ourselves our internal like success barometer, you know, so we know when we're, we know when we're hitting there and we could feel like, okay, this is it. I did it. You know, I'm doing it right now. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's really hard to tap into that because of all the other noise. Totally. Totally. And success and failure are two sides of the same coin, essentially. You know, I actually asked at the end of feature presentation, the last thing that we ask the audience is at the end of the day, at the end of the show, are we able to call ourselves artists and who determines our success? Is it the audience or is it us? And we are constantly having that conversation in the community about who do you make work for, mm-hmm. right? Do you make work that, that, you know, panders to the masses? Do you make work that feels intrinsically like the work that exists inside of you, for you, that nourishes you as an artist? And then what exists in between all of that? Is there a way you can get from A to B? Is there a way that you can have this like deep manifestation of whatever the thing is, but also say, hey, I'm talking about this really important and intentional thing, but I've got all these other, all these ways that we can explore this. Mm -hmm. I think that that was a big part of our, we had a lot of conversation about that when we were creating both, uh, especially feature presentation, but also, again, this time with Feeling, which was my show about failure, um, talking about who determines that success and failure. And at some point, you know, you try so hard to make these things happen that you think are going to give you success or are going to make you feel successful. And at a certain point, it just becomes harder and harder to feel good about that. Right. And then the failure is so crushing and so devastating that, and you know, and then it becomes this sort of like scrambling, um, to try to, to try to make it or to try to succeed. And I, I felt that 
deeply uh, when I was um, auditioning for work in New York. There is this rhetoric in the dance world about constantly working and reaching. And, you know, it's not a failure. It's just, you know, it's a learning experience. And like, all the you know, reframe your relationship to the failure and move on. And you're going to you know, you're not going to make your first hundred auditions, but then you're going to get the one. So there's this really unhealthy relationship to success and failure as a performer. Right. And it feels like this crazy rat race. And the, you know, for me, it almost felt like the more I wanted it, the, the worse it got. The more I felt anxious and almost desperate to get these jobs, the worse the failure felt because the failure was, was imminent. You know, it was, I was crashing and burning and, you know, a lot of these moments and eventually just had to kind of laugh about it. I was like, I'm either going to cry about this. I'm going (laughs) to laugh about this. So I'm going to choose to laugh about this. Um, and then in reflecting on it, um, you know, when I'm creating work about it, thinking about removing myself from the dance audition, right? Because, that's not necessarily a thing that everyone's going to get. We did do a section about auditions, but <laughs> that was that was more like an educational <laughs> piece. Um, but then, you know, thinking about, okay, well, what what is the thing that makes people do this? What Why do we put ourselves in these situations? Why do we expose ourselves to um, potential failure? And what's interesting about that? And let's zoom out and think about it on a global level. And let's think about how, you know, what what's going on in politics? What's all this performance about success in politics? And, you know, politicians are like the biggest performers, yes. right? And we know that and we kind of go along for the ride. But just thinking about all these examples of success and failure that are cultural or are um, experiential. And identifying them. And then figuring out ways to express that or be like, or provide a, um, an example, mm-hmm. you know, that's, that is the, the most fun part of the work for me is actually that brainstorming. What are some examples of this, um, that lots of, of people face? And that is like the, the first couple months of my process is just a lot of talking about that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of talking and there's a lot of writing before any of the movement happens. And you talk, talk to Leah or other people? I talk, So Leah and I worked together um, for my first two shows, It's Not Me, It's You, in 2014 and feature presentation in 2016. And that was just me and her. We were just talking. Some of those conversations even made it into the shows. And we come from very similar backgrounds and we have a very similar understanding of the world. And I think we were really able to get into some, uh, dig into some uh, really great um, and difficult subject material as a result of that. For this most recent process, Leah has been in grad school for the last two years. She was absolutely a part of this process, but... I invited in, it was a sort of a, a way of challenging my, my own process, was to invite in all these brand new artists that I hadn't worked with, but people who I think are um, doing interesting work in their own field or, or like-minded people, people whose opinions I trust. I brought people on as kind of consultants um, to look at the work and, and people who kind of have a sense of what I'm going for and would bring all these people together and be like, all right, let's talk about failure. Let's talk about 
um, without implicating anyone, obviously, let's just talk about how we experience failure and what's interesting about failure as a concept. Mm -hmm. Then, you know, we have these long conversations and I say, oh yes, that's really interesting. This idea of fake it till you make it. Okay. That's an interesting idea. Let's talk about that. What are the ways that we can put that on stage? What is the worst job interview you've ever had? What's the worst audition experience you've ever had? What is the thing that's felt the most mortifying to you? Um, so, you know, we have these conversations and and then there's always this kind of understanding, you know, at the end of it, like, oh, yes, it's because of this nuanced little idea, you know, like, oh, well, it's just that I'm feeling so bad that I feel like I have to keep going because I'm just like snowballing at this point and the it's getting worse and worse and worse and I'm just crashing and burning and I'm digging myself deep into this hole and I don't have any other option and that tension is really interesting trying to pretend like everything's fine when when you know the world is burning right. around you um, is you know something that I incorporate a lot into my work how do we as human beings deal with our own idea of of uh, who we are as individuals and and how do we deal with our own personalized idea of failure? What is the sort of darkness that exists in, you know, when at, at the end of the day, if you have succeeded or if you have failed, like what rests on that and mm-hmm. and how can we get super, super, super specific about that experience and then find a way to communicate that. It's interesting because when we first started this conversation, I was really jazzed by this idea of success and what success means. I've done a lot of work around that in Mm -hmm. my own life. But the more we talk, the more I'm interested in the idea around failure because I think there's this really interesting tension that you're talking about between the private and the public. Mm -hmm. I mean, sometimes it is the public exposure of a certain type of vi- vulnerability that is what makes us feel like failures. And the way we deal with our failures most often is very, very privately. Mm-hmm. And it's so you are putting this out in a public forum about very private experiences. It's mm-hmm. just a lot of really interesting public private stuff going on there. Yeah. yeah, I think it's it's so tricky, you know, because it's so hard to to stand up on stage and kind of feel, I feel so exposed. I feel like I'm, it would be better if I were just naked on stage, you know, that would be a hell of a lot easier than what I'm doing right now. And it does really, it it feels scary um, for sure. um, Because that's exactly what I'm doing. I'm kind of saying like, all right, I'm going to give you some very specific examples of my own failure because if I'm general about this, it's not going to land because you may not have had the same audition experience as me or the same relationship experience as me or whatever the thing is. Um, but you're going to know what that feels like. So I, yes, that's exactly what I'm doing. I am kind of exposing the ugliness of, of striving for success and not getting it and feeling like a failure and in order to do that, I have to really look at my own life and say, what are the things that make me feel the most like a failure? In what arena do I feel like a failure? Not in, not in the, the sense that I look like a failure to other people. Because a lot of people may have no idea right. about what this failure is to me. And what I discovered in my own life is that 
the, the worst kind of failure to me is failure in relationships. And that is just the most soul destroying, crushing interpersonal experience that I could have. I have made a lot of life decisions around that, you know, trying to avoid that at all costs. And part of why I put that on stage in one way or another um, is because it feels like it's coming from a, a real lived experience in my own life and in my own body. And which is how I experience the world, you know, in doing that, I'm not only letting people in, right, but I'm also kind of turning the mirror back, you know, at, at the audience and saying, you, you know, that you've had this similar experience. And so then there's this kind of like solidarity that comes in through that, um, this sense of understanding and appreciation and connection. And also I think, and what I've heard from audience members is this kind of like painful experience, things that are difficult to watch because people are like, oh God, oh no, that's me. She's talking about me or whatever, you know, I've, oh, I can just, I know exactly what that feels like. And of course I'm not trying to, you know, make this a difficult experience for my audiences, but but uh, but that is so crucial. That's so important to me uh, that people have an experience. One would hope that by having some sort of empathy, some sort of sympathy and empathy to you on stage, they that would be another way that you could turn that mirror back to them because they're right. they're feeling like you're feeling because they've experienced it, mm-hmm. and they are they're feeling compassion for you. Right. So you know, maybe we could all feel compassion for ourselves because right. it is, it is universal. I mean, everybody messes up to mm-hmm. one degree or another, mm-hmm. and that is just part of life. So it's an opportunity to do some sort of like soothing or mm-hmm. clearing the air or self-acceptance, you know, and you're kind of sneaking up in that direction to, mm-hmm. to help people make peace with some of these moments in their lives that maybe they kind of push down to the bottom of the barrel. That is my hope for sure. I want also want people to see that, yeah, this is an experience that everyone has. So there, And there's a lot of shame too around interpersonal failure. And so kind of unveiling it and saying, this exists, we're all here, we've all been through something similar. It kind of... Um, my, I hope simultaneously makes you kind of cringe and feel like, oh, that that sort of physical feeling of of shame or or whatever or pain, but also feeling a sense of relief, like, oh, thank God, other people are experiencing this in a similar way, and we can have conversations about that. In my most recent show, I went on these um, these series of dates with this uh, man, and they became increasingly. Uh, worse and worse and kind of more abusive, um, starting from like very benign uh, sort of small microaggressions, um, using a lot of humor, um, almost as a device so that people didn't even really notice how bad it was until we kind of pulled the rug out mm. and then, um, you know, showed a, a couple more iterations of the dates and then suddenly it wasn't funny anymore or it was funny, but in this like painful way um, where there's a, we, there's actually a lot of pain underneath the laugh. 
And I had a couple of folks come up to me after the show saying, I just wanted you to get out of there. I wanted you to stop going on these stupid dates with this jerk. Mm. And then we actually brought him physically into the room after only having shown him in uh, projected in film. <laughs> um, and, and we had kind of made him this villain at this point. And then he walks in and he has this sort of like new age kind of, you know, he's just coming back from his yoga retreat and he's going to tell me, you know, how I can really flourish. And he's going to teach me how to be a dancer, even though I've been doing this since I was 13. And he started doing this like six months ago, you know, so he's got this. And so we take it to the sort of absurdist extreme but he walks in the room and there's this collective like groan, like, oh no, he's here. <laughs> he's, he's in the flesh. He's here. And now we have to watch this in real time um, after having seen her go through these really painfully toxic um, dates, um, experiences. And I loved that. And I, I kind of bringing people along for the ride in that way that feels really cool that that is uh when i those are those moments are when the work feels successful to me in that moment because i make this work in a vacuum right i have no idea how it's going to land especially when we're working with humor it's so tricky right because everyone has a different sense of humor right so i'm guessing and when it works it is like the best experience i'm like oh thank god yes thank god and then when it doesn't work it's hard it is so hard and then well, it's hard but it's also uh, a learning experience for me thinking oh wow i had no idea people were going to react that way sometimes people laugh at the weirdest stuff that is so not funny to me right. it's so interesting um to kind of uh allow people the opportunity to respond you know, you set up the platform. You're like, okay, cool. Here are some things. I'm going to – right off the bat, I usually start with something that's very showy or very um, sort of bombastic that gets the audience kind of like right away. And so they're like, cool, we're here now. We're engaged. And that opens the door to all sorts of things, mm -hmm. um, especially when we are performing in alternative spaces like bars. It kind of – breaks the traditional role of the audience member they're allowed to laugh they're allowed to groan they're allowed some some people even yell and it's just yeah it's a, been a really interesting part of that experience so we need to talk about your north carolina arts council fellowship yes yes congratulations <laughs> thank you this, thanks this is a fairly recent announcement is that right it is yes all right and I think that this fellowship is helping you embark on a new direction or a new journey as an artist. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us about that? Sure. So I um, applied for this fellowship and I, I um, kind of just asked for time. You know, um, it's, it's very much a process-based fellowship. And I really want to use the time to explore my work in a different way. Even before this fellowship came about, I had been in discussions with uh, my videographer, who's Emily Frockling. She's amazing. Um, and we had already talked about going back to the most recent work and capturing some of it as a dance film, as a short. Because 
after looking at some of the documentation, I realized that there was so much that was lost in the documentation. I mean, documentation is tricky mm-hmm. because it's such a dance is such a such a physical thing, and it's really hard to capture on film. So I've always wondered about the ways in which we can explore the sort of idiosyncrasies of the movement with film. And one of the things that I loved so much about incorporating film in my last work was this idea of, um, of subtlety, of using subtlety and using nuance as a way to really highlight some of the difficulties around the subject matter or some of the sort of very, very specific um, moments, human moments that exist inside of whatever the experience is. And so I was thinking about creating a very short kind of dance film that exists kind of in the same world as my last work. Then I got this fellowship and thought it would be such a great opportunity to, rather than just to do a whole brand new show and, you know, well, great, I've got this money now I can, you know, fund this next work. I thought it would be a great opportunity to actually look back on my last five years of work um, and think about ways in which I can capture this on film. I've also been thinking a lot about how the idea of success and failure is based off of all these different criteria. You know, it's based off of your culture, um, your socioeconomic status. Um, it's based off of, you know, familial stuff, um, regional stuff. You know, there's, there's there are all these different elements that come into uh, what builds your idea of success and failure. And I thought it might be a really great opportunity to actually go into communities that I don't experience and talk to folks who don't look like me um, about their ideas of success and failure and use the opportunity to really research um, these ideas and have that then inform this film. And I'm still, you know, it's very much in the early part of the process for that. So I'm not really sure how we're going to weave that in, whether it's going to be kind of part of part documentary, or whether that's just going to serve as the foundation for the film that we end up creating. For me, as a dancer, what's really compelling about film is that there are these teeny little things like like a sh- an eye shift, a shift of your, the eye, or the way in which we sort of adjust our body, um, the little hand gestures, you know, these things that I, that make us who we are, um, often get lost on stage. I noticed that, um, in my own work when we were presented by the American dance festival in 2015. Um, and we presented this work that was about relationships that was so reliant on specificity and people just couldn't see it. They're too far away. And that was a really important learning experience for me. First, just in learning what kind of work I make and, and how that is going to guide where I end up presenting my work, right? For better or worse, I create work that needs to be in intimate spaces in order for it to really come across, in order for it to really translate. And another way to do that is in film. And so I'm really interested in what that's going to look like. I have such a great 
team of folks, you know, I think a lot of a lot of people have asked me like, well, who's going to be in charge? Is it you or is it the filmmaker? And I think we we have a really wonderful understanding of of what we are interested in um, as a team. And so I'm really looking forward to kind of experimenting and seeing what that looks like. Yeah. And, and I also am excited to learn, you know, this is something that feels um, not necessarily in my wheelhouse. And so I'm, I'm curious to see how it's, uh, how it's going to work, but I, but it, it, it feels like the sort of natural progression. It feels like the natural kind of next step is to really, um, hone in on what it is I'm trying to say with these themes of success and failure and what that means in a more kind of general way, but also in a much more specific way at the same time. It's like the specific and the universe is kind of the same thing. So we're closing in on the end of 2018. Mm-hmm. Is 2019 going to be devoted to this dance film project or do you have other things coming down the pike? I do have other things coming down the pike. I think that it is, um, it is a big, it's going to be a big part of the work that I do in 2019. I am also going to be doing a couple of different projects um, kind of on a freelance basis. That's not necessarily my own work. I'm doing a project at Duke. I'm doing another project up in New York. So yeah, there's there's kind of like the natural ebb and flow of projects that come up. Um, I imagine that a lot of my creative process, especially my solo creative process, is is going to be dedicated to that, um, to this fellowship and this dance film um, endeavor. But yeah, I have, I've, you know, there are always new projects on the horizon that I'm excited about. I'm always trying to work with new folks in the community, usually people who come from a, either another line of work or have something to offer um, that is outside of, of what I do. And so then that's why I love working in collaboration so much. I'm I, a major collaborator and everyone who has worked with me has, has done a, a lot of hard labor. Um, it's very much that part of the process. And that is, that is kind of why I choose the folks that I choose um, is not only because they're, happen to be very good at what they do, but they also are interested in uh, being a part of the conversation and part of the creation and the sort of uh, concept mm-hmm. building with me. That That is such, an, in, such a crucial part of my process. I'm always curious to, uh, curious about different folks and figuring out different avenues that I can explore, things that keep me challenged. Um, this is also why I like working for other people mm-hmm. as well, um, or being, you know, somewhat of a consultant or a collaborator, you know, when I'm not at the helm, um, because it kind of allows me to, to explore in a different way too, when I am not in charge, I have a lot more freedom in some ways and less in others, but yeah, no, I'm gonna, I'm excited to, to keep creating and and keep learning thank you yeah so much for being here i am really intrigued by this dance film and i can't wait to see what it yields me too right there with you (laughs) well i'll be surprised (laughs) thank you again so much yeah for sure thank you the biggest and best thing you can do right now to support this podcast is to share this episode with a friend 
Help us build our listenership and spread the word about the value of hearing artists talk about their work in this community. Let your friends know you listen and encourage them to listen too. Artist Soapbox theme music by Bart Matthews. This episode of Artist Soapbox was recorded at my house in Durham, North Carolina. See links in the show notes and on our website for more information, artistsoapbox.org. And we're out. We're out.